Our topic for today, this is the first of our three-part evening series entitled History of Jewish-Christian Relations. This is part one, Jews, Christians, and the, and the Kabbalah in Renaissance Italy. Uh, professor Ruderman is um, a very well-known and well-regarded professor of Jewish history, one of the greats of our time, actually. He didn't have me tell you that. I just, I'm saying that. He's presently the Joseph Meyerhoff Professor of Modern Jewish History um, and was formerly the Ella Dav, uh, Daravoff, Director of the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to uh, spending, prior to coming to Pennsylvania, UPenn, he taught at University of Maryland and Yale University. He's the author of many books. Uh, people came to the opening night. Um, uh, many of you got copies of one of the books. If you didn't get copies, you emailed me, and I'm ordering more. Um, he's past president of the, of the American Academy for Jewish Research. The great course teaching company has produced two of his Jewish history courses, each in 24 lectures. In 2001, the National Foundation for Jewish Culture honored him with his Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in Jewish history. Basically, he, ha he, he has won the Academy Award, the Cannes Film Festival Award, and the Golden Globes for Jewish Education. In, we'll put it in that, you know, in that vein, right? We'll do it that way. So with that, let's uh, get going on the first part in our three-part series. We have handouts to share. Should I give them out now, or do you want them? Okay. Good evening, Erev Tov. Um, so those of you who haven't met yet, uh, please introduce yourself, uh, and I look forward to seeing you. If not all, I think actually there were 21 lectures, so this is the, so now I have. Oh, he's really counting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he, I think, there's one more I think that he said. Okay, but in any case, uh, I'm looking forward to it all, uh, and uh, so far I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But I, it's too loud, I, I'm, I'm gonna push it away. All right, okay, okay, okay. Um, so, uh, this is, uh, as you see, I cluster. I, w I want to create some kind of continuity. You can obviously get into one lecture at a time, and that's enough. But uh, the possibility of learning, of seeing a module of, of three lectures seems to me a, a better way of teaching. So, this is on Jewish-Christian relations. It's okay? It's not too loud? Uh, yeah, uh, no, keep the mic there. Okay, it's just a pain, in, it's in my head, but uh, all right, it, it's fine. Um, so here's, here's what I, I want to do and what I'm really trying to accomplish. Um, in some respects, those of you that are going to hear Bernie Cooperman, when, when is that, like in a week or two or something? So Bernie is an old friend and he also studies the Renaissance and he's not going to lecture on this topic, so there's no overlap whatsoever. But it seems to me it will already provide you for some context for understanding uh, Professor Cooperman. So I think that's nice that we, uh, in fact, you know, uh, just uh, happen to be connecting on the same kinds of subjects. But here's what I want to propose in this three modular course, whether you take one or two or three. Share it out. So, Ari, 45 minutes is good, right? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? We need more, we need more <clears throat> copies. Yeah, I can maybe share 
Okay, just hold them. Don't look at them yet because they are very esoteric texts. So you won't understand what the hell they are until I tell you. Um, all right, so here's what I wanted to do. I've been studying the history of Judaism within a Christian context for some 45 years. Uh, and many of my books deal with the theme of Jewish-Christian relations. Um, what I'm trying to do, uh, so each of the three topics are actually based on my own written work. So you're getting really, you know, original stuff. Uh, if you read me already, of course, it'll all be boring. But if you haven't read me, then it will ho hopefully be fresh. Uh, what I'm talking about tonight, I actually uh, wrote something in the 80s. Um, on uh, a character who you'll hear about, Pico. It's, this is, we were talking about Jewish food before. Pico, I'm not talking about food, uh, I'm talking about a person, as you will see. Um, the second topic uh, is, uh, comes from a book I wrote in 2007. Uh, and the last topic, I'm actually working on a book right now. So that is fresh, very fresh. Uh, and I must say, um, only once before have I given these, this series before a lay audience. Um, with rabbis, it doesn't work because they don't understand. They don't have enough knowledge. But uh, I actually did it. There's a wonderful Institute for Jewish Learning in Washington, DC. You know about that one, Ari? Um, and I, I went away retreat. And we did uh, actually five lectures in the course of that weekend on Jewish-Christian relations. And I was really surprised how much the people got into it. So uh, you're my second guinea pigs, a uh, group of, of guinea pigs. And I hope it, it actually works. Um, this is a very special topic for me because I began my own career working in the Renaissance. Uh, as I mentioned last time, those of you that heard me and heard my, a little bit of my autobiography or intellectual autobiography, um, I discovered a book by Cecil Roth called The, the, uh, the Jews of the Renaissance and all of a sudden, perhaps, uh, I'm going to say this many times in my lectures, uh, all history, uh, at least the history that I do, is all autobiography. You know, the, the fact that what we choose to study, our interest in the particular aspect of the past, is very much related to who we are and what we are striving for. And perhaps when I began studying the Renaissance, it had something to do with looking for models of Jews who were both uh, grounded in their Judaism and proud of it at the same time, drew from the outside, as I, as I talked about in one of the texts that we spoke about last time, which was also from the same period, from the Renaissance, Judah Messer Leon text, the text that we referred to uh, two nights ago. Uh, so I'm interested in Jewish-Christian relations here, not so much from the perspective of anti-Semitism. In other words, that story we seem to have not only know, but we have spent a great deal of time talking about. In the last 20, 25 years, or most of the period when I've been working in academia, I would say this field of Jewish-Christian relations has exploded with all kinds of work begun from the time of Jesus all the way to the present. Uh, it is a remarkable kind of work, which is quite stimulating. Uh, for example, Yisrael Yuval from the Hebrew University uh, has looked at the Passover Haggadah as a polemic against Christianity and reads all of rabbinic texts through the lens of responding to Christianity uh, and as if the Pesach uh, ceremony, for example, is a kind of ceremony both for Jews and Christians and they're competing in terms of explaining the symbols of the holiday. Remember when Yisrael Yuval's article came out many years ago uh, and I was at a Seder at the Hill Rabbi's uh, house in, when I was at Yale 
Um, and uh, we spent the whole night talking about it, and our family was so furious with us because we never got to the, the, the food until about one in the morning. Uh, but it was so exciting to be talking about that thing. Uh, Daniel Boyarin and a whole group of other scholars have studied the fact, you know, Judaism and Christianity were supposed to split. But according to their reading of ancient Christianity and Judaism, they never split. Uh, they continued to, to cohabit the same place. And, and Jews and Christians sort of blended with each other throughout the long period of time. Clearly, Christianity is responding to Judaism uh, and to its, its, uh, its, its parent religion. But at the same time, Jews are responding to the Christian world, sometimes very negatively, sometimes with extraordinary negative passion, but at the same time drawing and understanding themselves through the lens of the other. We learn about ourselves through looking at the other. And that's really what I want to illustrate tonight. So I have looked for moments of that Jewish-Christian relation where something is going on that is much more complicated than hostile Christians attacking Jews. In other words, that part we know, and I could lecture on the history of anti-Semitism, and I'm sure you've heard plenty of lectures already on anti-Semitism, or you will hear within the course of, of your, your study in this institute. But I want to speak about something that uh, is absolutely uh, esoteric, uh, but extremely fascinating if you follow me. And we'll give you an idea at least of one moment when Jews and Christians interacted with each other, learned from each other, and clearly uh, what emerges is something very, very different. You will see that I'm situating this lecture within the context of the 15th century. But if I get to my last remark, which I plan on getting to, you will see it has relevance for today. In other words, I'm not going to leave you only in the 15th century. I want to take you back to the issue of how Jews and Christians relate in our own society. And clearly, that is the theme of all three of the presentations that I'm going to give. The Renaissance, as you will hear also from Bernie, uh, is a remarkable period of interaction between Jews and Christians. Uh, Jews came to Italy. Um, as early as uh, the destruction of the temple in, in 70 uh, CE, 70 AD, uh, when a group of Jewish captives were brought uh, as the Romans conquered the temple and so on. But we can't speak really of a continuous history of Italian Jews. There were Jews living in the ancient world. You can see still Jewish catacombs in Rome. But then there's a gap, and then all, all of a sudden we don't hear about Jews until the 9th and 10th century when they seem to be arriving from North Africa, crossing for the first time into Europe through uh, the Italian boot. And they come north, and we even hear the expression in the ninth century, ki me trani te Torah udvar Hashem me otranto. Trani and otranto, you know, of course, ki mitzion te Torah and all of that, you know, out of, uh, in other words, they're talking about two towns where Jews settled in the 9th and 10th century, and they refer to it in a kind of uh, language of our liturgy, out of Zion, but out of, out of uh, Trani or, or Trento, these communities emerged in the 9th, 10th century. And then they moved up to Rome. And then, of course, there are gaps as well. And all of a sudden now, in the 13th, 14th century, we hear about Jews coming from elsewhere. First, Italian Jews from the south moving to the north, Jews coming down from Provence, Provençal Jews, that is southern France, settling in Italy. Uh, and also Ashkenazic Jews, were called in Italian Tedeschi Jews, coming after 1348, after the, the, the Black Plague. Remember, we mentioned the Black Plague two nights ago. 
and making their way into Italy. I mean, it's very hard for you to think of Venice or Padua if you've ever been to these extraordinary places. I've led uh, uh, tours to, uh, to uh, Jewish Italy as well. Um, to think of them as cultures where Yiddish was spoken and where Yiddish was published. There was an enormous Yiddish publishing industry at the end uh, uh, of the 16th century uh, in, uh, in uh, northern Italy. So clearly we have Ashkenazic Jews, we have Provençal Jews with their own dialogue, uh, their own dialect, um, Jews from Avignon, for example, uh, and we also have Italian Jews, and all of them, of course, with their own liturgies, with their own customs, and so on. So we were speaking about Italy as a kind of place, oh, you know how uh, Italy is referred to uh, in Hebrew sources? Italia. Translation, anybody? E is what? You know, uh, the island. The island, good. Tal do, D-E-W, not, not D-O, D of, yeah, God. The islands, now I know it's not an island, but nevertheless that's what they call it. Italia is, uh, it's also, you know, Pauline is, is uh, Pauline. Here we will hang out. We're not going to Israel, we're going to settle in Poland. Pauline, but, but so Jews love to play, you know, with the, with the Hebrew and so on. So Italia is, is the island of the dew of God. Um, in any case, it, it is a microcosm of Jewish life. Oh, and of course, I left out the final uh, two immigrations, uh, immigrations of Jews. Number one, in 1492, the Jews of Spain are expelled, and they come to Italy, of course. Uh, we, we have a whole group that, that show up, for example, in Ferrara in 1493. Uh, and then uh, later on, the Conversos, the Muranos, who you will also hear about when we talk about Amsterdam later on in this month. Um, um, they end up in, uh, in, 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 in uh, Livorno, in the city of Livorno, which is a town inhabited purely by conversos. They, like, unlike every other Jew, and I'm also going to be speaking about the ghetto uh, later on in, 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 in this, in this uh, long month course, uh, they don't have to live in a ghetto because they're so important economically and socially to their uh, Italian uh, 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 magnates that they are allowed to live freely in the city of Livorno, Leghorn, uh, which uh, is part of uh, the area of Tuscany. Um, so we have a remarkable history here of a small community, maybe of 30,000 Jews uh, in the 15th, 16th century, who are now living in this open place, uh, although sometimes persecuted and sometimes living under very dire conditions, but nevertheless able to flourish after leaving Spain or leaving Provence or leaving Ashkenaz, leaving the north, and settling in this remarkable entrepot of Jewish subcultures. What is interesting, I'm sure many of you have been, for example, to the ghetto of Venice. I'm going to speak about Venice later on. Um, notice how many synagogues were there, and each with their own liturgy. And believe it or not, uh, as you would expect Jews living uh, close, in close proximity to each other, they didn't always get along. Uh, they fought. Rabbis fought with each other, particularly rabbis. They love to fight with each other. Um, but also uh, uh, laypersons. So indeed, we have a, a remarkable microcosm of what I call early modern Jewry which is the topic of the book that you received, uh, uh, thanks to Ari, um, which is an overview of this entire period, including, of course, Italy, and even the subject I'm going to talk about tonight. So that's Italy. Now, one thing I've left out, of course, this is an exciting period for Western civilization. This is the period of the Renaissance. Uh, now, that's a real loaded word. Um, and to say, what is the Renaissance, you know, rebirth, what does that mean, and so on. 
It is a period which has been studied and reinterpreted and reinterpreted over time. Uh, it has something to do with the recovery of an ancient world uh, in terms of culture. It was a pedagogic movement, a cultural movement. It was uh, about rediscovering ancient sources and rethinking the very nature of what Christian identity is all about. In the 19th century, Jacob Burkhardt called it a kind of secular liberation from uh, uh, the religion of the Middle Ages. It wasn't that at all. In other words, that was his own perception as he saw the Renaissance, as he created the word, this great art historian in the 19th century. It was still a very religious age. But nevertheless, the focus on humanity, of rediscovering oneself, created a movement called humanism. We talked uh, uh, two nights ago about uh, the rhetorical handbook of Judah Messer Leon. Clearly, he was living under the influence of this Renaissance culture, and he rethought the categories of what it means to be Jewish within the context of the Renaissance. So I want to deal with the same period that I spoke about very quickly with Judah Messer Leon, but I want to do it from the Christian side. I want to introduce to you a figure um, who is really quite important in the history of Western culture. Uh, I, it's hard to say that kids these days study these texts, but I remember you know, the great books courses that I took in college. This was a standard uh, thinker and a thinker who we read. And his name is Pico della Mirandola. Uh, and do I have a chalk here? Or is that possible or, or that's too much? Forget about it? All right, all right, okay. I, I would write it on the board, but Pico is P-I-C-O, that's all you have to know. Um, his sidekick, who is equally famous as the great philosophers of the Renaissance, Pico was one, the other was Marsilio Ficino. So Ficino and Pico della Mirandola, okay? These were two philosophers of Neoplatonism. In other words, they had revived the study of the ancient philosopher uh, Plato, and they were rethinking their own Christian religion within the context of a rediscovery of these ancient texts. Ficino, in particular, was interested in exploring a group of pagan texts that had emerged during antiquity, of rediscovering them, of translating them from uh, Greek into Latin, and thus exposing the Christian world to a whole series of new ancient texts which would then stimulate uh, his own understanding of Christianity. And as you will see, Pico was doing the same thing. But for him, the focus was on the Hebraic tradition, not simply the pagan tradition of Egypt or Assyria or somewhere else, but in this case, the, the font of all knowledge as he saw at the Hebrew Bible, but in particular, as you will see, the Kabbalah. Now, why did the Renaissance fascinate me as a young scholar? Because it was the opening of a dialogue. Clearly, this is not the first time that Jews that have influenced the larger culture. Think of Maimonides, for example. I'm going to be speaking about him as well in our 20 lectures. Um, Maimonides' book, The Guide to the Perplexed, had an enormous impact upon uh, Christian civilization. Thomas Aquinas read Moses Maimonides, for example. Or Rashi was read by the Victorines, the, these monks who, who study the, 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 the ordinary meaning of the Hebrew text. They read the, the, the Jewish commentator Rashi. So clearly, and, or Ibn Ezra, the great uh, astrologer and astronomer of the Middle Ages. I will also refer to him in the course of my lectures on God and nature. 
um, clearly these thinkers made their impact upon the Christian world. But what we have here in the Renaissance is something different. A meeting of human beings directly, in other words, not only the written books of the Jews will make an impact upon the larger culture, but through oral discussion, through the actual meeting between Jews and Christians, something is going to emerge here that never emerged before. Or contemporary Jewish culture will have its impact upon the larger cultural space of the Renaissance. Now, I don't know about you, when I studied the Renaissance in college, and I actually, it started that way. I started the Renaissance, and then I asked myself, well, where the hell were the Jews in this Renaissance? This is white, Protestant, you know, waspy kind of culture. Men, of course, there weren't any women mentioned. There's a very famous article that appeared about 25 years ago. Were there women in the Renaissance? And you could ask the same question, were there Jews in the Renaissance? And that's really the beginning of my quest when I started looking for the Jews and actually discovered them. Um, so the Renaissance clearly is a very important cultural stimulus. And what it does, therefore, is challenge Jews to begin to rethink their culture. Uh, now what I want to do is let's talk about Pico for a second. Pico, the Count of Mirandola, which is near Modena, uh, travels. He's quite an extraordinary guy. He was only born in 1463. And he died in 1494, so he lived only 31 years, and he had an enormous impact upon Western civilization. Um, he is a, a remarkable figure who spends most of his time in Florence before he dies, travels to Paris, though, and, and it goes and, and Padua, which was, uh, you will hear about, is also a major university uh, center, uh, the Irvine of its time. Um, um, in, uh, in the 15th century. Actually, Padua is a little bit more important than UC Irvine, you'll forgive me, uh, at least in the 15th century or the 16th century. Uh, but in any case, there were Jews hanging out in these places. And the story that I want to tell you then is about a Christian who reads Torah. So my first question, and now I, I, I sort of painted the large uh, uh, context, and what I want to do now is focus now on the nitty-gritty of what's going on here. Why does a Christian want to study Torah? And particularly, as you will see, the esoteric Torah called Kabbalah. What motivated a man like Pico, of the stature of this Renaissance philosopher, who surrounded himself with all kinds of remarkable uh, scholars in all kinds of fields, what motivated him to study Judaism? And what I want to do is offer you five possible explanations and to sort of layer one on top of the other and suggest that all five reasons might be appropriate understanding the figure of it, why a Christian. There's actually an, an, a book written by a very famous scholar from the Hebrew University called Notsri Korei Batorah. That's the title of the book. A Christian who studies, who reads the Torah. So the question is, why would he want to? What was his need to return to these Jewish sources? And how does it come about? Well, the first explanation of these five is very simple. There's a long history of Christians, many of them former Jews, utilizing Jewish sources, not only the Bible itself, but rabbinic sources, to serve as testimonia to the Christian religion. In other words, to use them as witnesses to the fact that Jesus and Christianity is the true religion. 
So what we are speaking about then is Jewish, is our Christian missions. And you'll hear more about missionaries in my third lecture, because I, I don't know where, if I say history is all autobiographical, now I'm consumed by the study of a missionary in the 19th century, where that, that's leading me, I have no idea. But so far I'm still Jewish, so don't worry. Uh, maybe after the, uh, the lecture is over, after the month is over, I might do something, but right now I'm very Jewish. Um, in any case, um, um, Mission was a factor. In the 13th century, for example, a series of disputations took place between Jews and Christians. Uh, one of the most famous was a man named Raymond Martini. Uh, another one was Pablo Cristiani, who debated the great Ramban, Nachmanides, in a debate in Barcelona in the year 1263, in which they confronted each other. Uh, Pablo Cristiani, who had been originally a Jew, opens up the rabbinic text and said, look, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah at Rome. Why don't you just convert? Because indeed, your rabbinic texts prove that this indeed is about Christianity. This extension of studying rabbinic text even goes into Kabbalistic texts. By the 15th century, uh, a whole group of texts appear, Kabbalistic texts, some of them forgeries, which look like the Kabbalah, but are, are written in Aramaic, but nevertheless are trying to prove the truth of Christianity. When Kabbalistic books are begun to, to be published in the 16th century, both in Cunabula and, and into the 16th century, I cannot can use that word freely because he loves that word, um, it is the Christians who are publishing Kabbalah even before the Jews. The Jews are scared. Are we going to share the Kabbalah with the wider world? The Kabbalah is our own Jewish esoteric traditions. Notice I'm not going to define the Kabbalah so carefully here because it's a very complicated term. But let's just speak about Jewish esoteric learning. Uh, the classic work of the Kabbalah is the Sefer HaZohar, the Book of Splendor, uh, also from the 13th century. By the 15th, 16th century, Kabbalah had flourished, and it was also flourishing in, in Italy. One of the great commentators of, uh, of the Zohar, uh, of, of the Bible, writes a Kabbalistic commentary is an Italian Jew named Menachem Riccanati. So that already in Italy we have a, 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 a place where the Kabbalah is studied by Jews. But in the 16th century, Pico will initiate a whole group of Christians who become fascinated with the Kabbalah, uh, with Judaism as, as a whole. So the first reason why Pico might have entered into this world was simply following an old tradition. We learn about Jewish texts, and then we can convert Jews. And it's very interesting that some of the group of Jews who were attracted to study with him, and you'll hear about one of them in a minute, actually converted. Did he do this as primary reason? No. But it was certainly a byproduct that ultimately by engaging in this very, you know, a power relationship where Christians are on the top and Jews are on the bottom, many of these Jews who were attracted to study with Pico end up as Christians. So that, that seems to be a factor, although it is not the most important factor. My second factor is more Renaissance. And here I want to fall back on Pico's contemporary, Marsilio Ficino. I just love to say the word, Marsilio Ficino. Um, Ficino had a notion called Prisca Theologia. I told you this is going to be esoteric, but, it, but I'm going to make it, uh, I'm a Rashi, I'm going to make it very simple. Ancient theology. The idea of ancient theology, which permeated this, these group of philosophers in the Renaissance, was the idea, it's a, it's a very modern idea, that within every culture, within every religion, 
there is a unity of truth. Ultimately, by getting past the particularities of any religion, we can find a kernel of universal value of universal truth which everyone shares. In other words, this is the universal ideal of love, of understanding God, of a kind of unity uh, beyond the diversity of the world. Ancient theology is the search to identify a universal core linking the mosaic of religions and cultures of the world into one. That is why Ficino was motivated to go study ancient cultures in order to show that ultimately their Christian truth can be found even in their most secular texts. Ancient theology, therefore, is a Renaissance ideal, but I hope you already appreciate that it's also a very modern ideal. I mean, the, the notion of assimilation, of living within the larger cultural space, of being drawn into a kind of universal message, what separates Jews and Christians, and why can't a nice Jewish boy marry a nice Catholic girl, and vice versa, et cetera, et cetera, because all, everything is about love, it's about humanity, it's not about uh, you know, anything that's uh, specifically Jewish or Christian and so on. That ideal is already embedded in the, in the idea of ancient theology. So that ideal was an ideal which Ficino articulated but was upheld as well by Pico. And Pico added the third uh, reason why he studied Judaism. He called it poetic theology. And this is a very interesting idea. So how do we get at the universal truth within each culture? We need to study it like hieroglyphics. We need to learn the languages but also the concepts of each culture to try to decode that culture to get at a universal truth. Poetic theology is looking at all of these cultures as a kind of poetry and reading them, interpreting them, decoding them. And as you will see in a second, the chief means or tool by which we can decode these cultures is Kabbalah. Kabbalah here, not in the sense of a body of knowledge, but Kabbalah as, you'll forgive the academic word, hermeneutic. Uh, you know what that word means, hermeneutic? Simple. Uh, well, not quite. Herm a, a means of interpreting texts. Do you know when the Kabbalists read texts, they have a certain way of reading them, right? Uh, for example, I mean, the most simple is gematria. You know what gematria is? Yeah, every Hebrew letter is equivalent to a number. So if you start reading uh, verses in the Bible, you can come up with all kinds of interesting codes, right? You're decoding the Bible. Uh, Gematria is only one of many uh, hermeneutics. Uh, we're, now we have two words, incunabula and hermeneutics. Uh, write it down, right. Uh, by which we can, in other words, Kabbalah is a means of decoding the biblical text. That's what the Kabbalists were doing. They were reading into a text a kind of mystical fantasy. They were trying to get beyond the letters and the words uh, through uh, numerals and, and, through, and through all kinds of codes to enter into a space where they could then appreciate God directly and feel God directly. But Pico is arguing we can take that method of reading text and apply it to any text. In other words, Kabbalah therefore becomes a kind of universal interpretive guide for us in reading these texts. So that's poetic theology. Now two more reasons why Pico studied Judaism and the Kabbalah. The, first is, the, the fourth reason is he's, he was a humanist. And humanists were committed to the study of ancient languages. 
I remember when I first got to uh, Yale, that was my big moment in life. I was 39 years old and I was going to be made a full professor at Yale University and I had made it, right? I had made my alias, I, you know, that I was going to Yale. You know, I was at the University of Maryland, a big state school. So I met uh, Barty Giamatti. Uh, you, you know the actor Giamatti with Paul Giamatti? That's his father. He, uh, Bart was uh, the baseball commissioner, but he was also the president of Yale, and he was a Renaissance scholar. He, he calls me on the phone. I'm, I'm sitting, you know, my little, little rudiment, you know, in, uh, in Maryland, um, and uh, he says to me, um, this is Bart, and I said, and, he, and, and I said, Bart who? He said, Bart Giamatti, and I said, no shit. I, oh, forgive me, I didn't, I don't mean, uh, you know, and I sort of hung up on him, and he called me back again. I didn't think the president of Yale would be calling me. And he said, I just read your book. I just published one book at that time um, called The World of a Renaissance Jew. And I said, are you kidding? You read my book? So I melted and I took a real low salary and my father was really mad at me because I didn't take a high enough salary. But you know, I mean, this was Yale University. I mean, just going to Yale was enough, right? Uh, but Bart, you, we went out and we raised money for Jewish studies together. I started my career uh, raising money, as I said, two nights ago. Um, and the reason I'm telling you this story is his speech was extraordinary. He said, what Yale has to do is restore the third pillar of Western civilization. The first pillar is Latin, the second is Greek, and the third, of course, is Hebrew. So this was, so I remember the third pillar was always the, the key speech in raising money for Jewish studies at Yale. And Yale, of course, had been very negligent and hadn't raised money for Jewish studies at all until I came and then we raised uh, millions of dollars uh, with the help of Bard. But unfortunately, he, he died at a very young age. But to go back to this, so this is, the, the, so as a humanist, the study of Hebrew is important if one really is committed to classical languages. And therefore, I would give that some credence here as well. And finally, the most interesting reason. Kabbalah is a source of power for Pico. When, when he, uh, in, in 1486, he presents to the Pope 900 theses about the nature of religion. He is immediately excommunicated and the Pope has a fit because these are heretical ideas. Of the 900 theses, 119 deal with the Kabbalah. And you'll hear how he got to all of these Kabbalistic texts. One of them is most interesting. One cannot find Jesus Christ unless one studies, and, and here is the Latin words, Kabbalah a magia. Magic and Kabbalah are together. Kabbalah is a higher magic. Magic, if you've ever studied the Renaissance, is an important aspect of the elite culture of the Renaissance. Magic, of course, is an attempt to bring down, I never understood exactly what this word means. Here's another uh, uh, university word, the effluvia from heaven. I, I have no idea what effluvia is. Uh, maybe Ari can translate that word for us. But in any case, um, the, the kind of uh, the, the spiritual world, to bring it down and to use it for power. In other words, the, the Renaissance magician was a very important part of every uh, Renaissance court. Kabbalah is the highest magic for Pico. Kabbalah is not simply, you know, the study of mysticism. It's not simply uh, entering the, the, the spiritual world of the divine, of the ten spherot and so on and so forth. It is actually gaining a certain power to control the universe and to control nature. Uh, and so uh, Kabbalah is about power. They were still trying to turn lead into gold. Absolutely. They were still doing 
Absolutely, they were doing it even beyond the Renaissance, but clearly, and many of these alchemists work, had Jewish backgrounds. So alchemy, magia, all of, magic, all of these things are very much connected together. That's what we're speaking about. That's the sits in Laban. That's the, the, the context in which Pico is thinking about Judaism and ancient world, and all of these things are coming together. So if that's his motivation, so the question is, how does, the next question is, how does he get to this? And here the story becomes really fascinating because there are individuals that each one of them deserves a full monograph about it. In fact, we do have plenty of that has been written about this. The first character I want to mention to you was a Sicilian rabbi who was really a con, otter, con artist. There's no question about it. He called himself Flavius Mitridatus. He came and gave a speech in Rome in which he tried to prove Jesus Christ from rabbinic sources. And the cardinals were really uh, fascinated. He immediately caught the attention of Pico. And Pico invited him to Florence to teach him Kabbalah, but to teach him Judaism in general. What he did, and this is really quite remarkable, he translated 50 Hebrew books into Latin. And we have the original manuscripts sitting today in the Vatican Library. I've seen a couple of them. And a number of them have been published already. And not only about Kabbalah, uh, Jewish philosophy, Midrash, uh, uh, all kinds of subjects, but subjects that interested Pico. And it was, it's really interesting how he chose these works. Most of them were either philosophy or Kabbalah, but also Kabbalah. But what is interesting about and fascinating about this con man, why do I call him a con man? It's because he knew exactly what his pupil wanted. He didn't just want to read Hebrew texts. He wanted to read Hebrew texts that would bring out for him his own Christian identity would make him feel uh, better about his Christianity. It wasn't so much to missionize other Jews. It was simply to revive, to revitalize his own notion of what it meant to be a Christian. And therefore, if Hebrew texts could sort of point him in the right spiritual direction, he could be turned on. So what Mitridatus does not just translate. He manipulates the text to bring out trinities all over the place. There's the spirit, here's the God and the Son, and so on and so forth. In other words, everywhere when you read these Latin texts, you are entering a world of Christianity. Uh, although they are Hebrew texts and the original text has been preserved, uh, what Mitridatus does is to use his translation as a vehicle to please his donor, which he actually does. So the first character in this story is a guy named Flavius Mitridatus. The second is a man, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to remember all these names, so I, I'm not going to uh, uh, slow down, but uh, uh, whatever you remember is good. Elijah Del Medigo. Del Medigo, of course, the name, another doctor. I mentioned Messer Leon two nights ago, now uh, Elijah Del Medigo. He was an Aristotelian Jewish philosopher who could not teach at the University of Padua, but hung out in Padua anyway. Pico turns to him to study Averroes, who was a commentator of Aristotle. Um, and finally, he writes him a letter saying, can you give me a list of Kabbalistic books to read? Elijah Domenico is a philosopher. He doesn't like Kabbalah. Kabbalah is anti-philosophy. And therefore, he gives them a list, but he says, leave me alone. And he goes off to Crete, where he hangs out and publishes a book in which he mentions explicitly Pico, and he is not favorable to the idea of Christians studying our Jewish texts. So that's Elijah del Medigo. But perhaps the most famous in this group of Jews teaching Christians is a man named Yohanan Alimano. Alimano, of course, Germany. Aliman, right? Ashkenazi. He's a Jew, comes, 
And here I can connect the, the dots already. You recall Judah Messerleone from two nights ago, those of you that were here. Judah Messerleone taught him to be a doctor. Alimano was a doctor and received his smicha, whatever you call it, for his medical degree, not from a university, but directly from his tutor, who was Judah Messerleone. He comes to Florence where he begins, and this guy is an extraordinary guy. He knows Arabic, he knows Aramaic, he knows philosophy, he knows magic, he knows, and he's about 20 years older than Pico. So the question is, who's teaching who here? Pico asked him, and we have this in, in his own writing. Pico said, I, there's a wonderful Jewish book called Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. Will you write me a commentary, a Jewish commentary on this book? So here, uh, Alimano responds and produces a commentary for him. We have the writings of Alimano. Most of them have not been published. Alimano is a key source of understanding Pico's world. Now, I didn't mention to you Pico's most famous writing. And maybe some of you that actually remember the classical course you took in the great books in college will remember this. It is called The Oration for the Dignity of Man. It becomes the manifesto of the Renaissance. It is the most important text of Renaissance philosophy. It is about the microcosm, that the human beings are the center of the universe, not the macrocosm, not, not the universe as a whole, not God, but the focus is on humanity. Burkhardt, of course, made this into a kind of secular humanism. It wasn't. But nevertheless, this text was absolutely critical. Why do I mention it right now? Because Moshe Edel and other scholars in recent years have identified fully that this text is, is saturated with Kabbalistic ideas. In other words, one of the main texts of Western philosophy in the Renaissance, and we're going to talk later on about Spinoza and, and how Jewish thought influences Western philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But already in the Renaissance period, the Oration of Dignity of Man is a work which speaks in terms of Kabbalistic language. And Moshe Nidel and others have, have argued that the sources of this remarkable manifesto, something that Renaissance scholars did not know anything about, comes through Alimano. Alimano seems to have left an enormous imprint upon this young man who died at the age of 31, Pico. And during the course of their encounter over several years, studied Jewish texts with him. Alimano does not convert to Christianity and remains a Jew throughout. But he clearly converses with Pico, teaches Pico. We know explicitly Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. Uh, he wrote a commentary, etc. But we know more, we can see if we study Alimano's thought against Pico's thought, there's an extraordinary relationship. And the question is, did Pico influence Alimano or Alimano influence Pico? It would seem that the older man would have had a greater influence on the younger man. But perhaps it was a mutual kind of interaction which makes this story so extraordinary. So this is uh, the teachers of Pico. Now I come to the third. So the first thing I did was talk about why a Christian should study Kabbalah. I want to make sure you're with me. Number two is the question of how did Pico learn the Kabbalah and Judaism? And that was, of course, through his teachers, Mitridatis, Elijah del Medigo, Yohanan Alimano. Uh, and, and notice again the importance of these individual Jewish thinkers in shaping Renaissance thought. Again, when I was an undergraduate, no one ever talked about Jews in the Renaissance. All of a sudden now, we are seeing that very much at the center of Renaissance thinking uh, is Judaism and Jews. Now, I got to show you this. In other words, and here I come to my two texts. This is a wild text. 
But for those of you uh, who are familiar with the first line, in fact, the first word of the Torah, uh, you will be able to figure this out. What I want to show you is two texts. One of them is a text written by Pico. The other is written by a Jew. And I want to show you a kind of parallel between the two. In other words, after I talk about this Pico text, I want to talk about the impact of Pico on Jewish thought. And I'm going to return to talking about Jewish thinkers for the last few moments before I finish. Um, but let me start, and oh, so I, I only have about 10, 15 minutes, so I'm going to speed it up. Um, Pico wrote a commentary on the first 11 chapters of Breshit, of Genesis, called the Heptapolis. At the end of the text uh, is an appendix on the word Breshit. Breshit, translate? In the beginning, and, and in the new uh, JPS translation, it would be when God began to create the world, you know, but, you know, in the King James Version, it's in the beginning. Now, again, I wish I could write, but I'm not going to write, but I'm going to, you have to do this all orally, all right? Uh, Bereshit, so it's Bet, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Taf, okay? You all can figure that out in Hebrew? So uh, let's play a game. And the name of the game is uh, in Hebrew, Chochmat uh, or Arts Kambanandi in Latin. And that is how many words can you find in one word? In other words, it's a kind of game that children might play, right? But this is an example of, and now we can use that word again, Kabbalistic hermeneutics, OK? Uh, or exegesis, if you prefer that simpler word. In other words, the idea of a Kabbalist, how he would read this first word. Pico is going to use a Kabbalistic methodology to understand the word Breshit. And what he's going to do is, Chochmat uh, he's going to put together a whole group of words that come out of Breshit. So for example, I'm going to do it in Hebrew, then I'm going to translate it. Av, Aleph Bet. Bar, or Bivar, uh, Bar is son. Reshit is beginning. Shabbat, shin bet taf. Notice I'm, all I'm doing is taking letters out of the word breshit and making new words, okay? It's a, a kind of little children's game. Uh, rosh, resh aleph shin, head. Uh, esh, fire. Uh, and so on. Ish, aleph yud shin, uh, man, okay? You get the idea of what's going on here. So it, you, I'm not going to read this text to you, but I'm just giving you how to read this text if you want to look at it. I, I've given you the text here. So what he does, therefore, is take all of these words and then put them together in a new formulation as a whole sentence. Let me give it to you in Hebrew and then translate it and then explain it. All right? First in Hebrew, for those of you that are Hebraists. And I know there, it's not everybody, so I'm going to immediately translate, so don't worry. So he comes up with this string of words from the word Breshit. Av, Bevar, Reshit, Shabbat, Bara, Rosh, Esh, Shat, Rav, Ish, Brit, Tav. Tav is, he's cheating because he needs Tav, Tov, good, but he only has a, a, a Tav and not a Tet, so he, he, he misspells it. But, you know, what the hell? I mean, he's trying to get something here. Now, let me read it to you in English. Father in the Son, Bevar in the Son, beginning, rest, or end, created the head, the fire, the foundation of the great man 
in good agreement. Now that means gobbledygook, right? Okay, now let me put it into English. This is an extraordinary statement about the nature of Christian faith understood from the perspective of Neoplatonism and Neoplatonism, the idea of, of this revival of Platonic philosophy that there are three worlds. There's a spiritual world, a heavenly world, and a, and a material world, and they're all connected, the harmony of all of the worlds. That, that's critical here in terms of the background. So here's the line he comes up with based on his interpretation of Breshit. I know this is crazy, but I, I, I want to show it to you anyway. It had a great impact. Lots of Christians read this. So here it goes, the Father and the Son, and through the Son, okay, this is Christianity, right? The Father and the Son. The beginning and the end, that is the Alpha and the Omega from Revelations 1.8, the beginning and the end, created the head, the fire, and the foundation of the great man with good agreement. What is the head, the fire, and the foundation? That's the intellectual world, the heavenly world, and the material or the corruptible world in good agreement is, uh, creates the great man. The great man is the macrocosm as opposed to the microcosm, the great universe, right? The universe, the cosmos, as opposed to the microcosmos, creates the cosmos in good agreement, that is the harmony of the three worlds. So God, that is the Trinity, creates the world, the three worlds, which are interconnected and the harmony of the worlds all brought together. This, on, if you were to ask Pico to stand on one foot and explain his Torah, that would be it. And he got that all from one word, Breshit. Okay? So what do we have going on here? Essentially what is remarkable about this story, about this odyssey, is how Jewish Kabbalah becomes Christian Kabbalah. There's nothing Jewish about this anymore. But nevertheless, it, it originated within a Jewish context, within a Jewish, forgive me, hermeneutical grid, uh, a Jewish uh, exegesis, a Jewish kind of interpretation was now transformed in the cup of a Christian, in the mind of a Christian, into something that was totally Christian. So Christian Kabbalah ultimately becomes not Jewish Kabbalah, but Christian Kabbalah. Pico's impact is enormous. The study of, Christ, of Judaism by Christianity in the Renaissance is picked up by a whole group of thinkers. One of them is Johann uh, Reuchlin, and there are a whole group of others who study Kabbalistic texts. The study of Christian Hebraicism is an enormous subject which I will return to uh, in, in the second lecture in particular, how the Christians rediscovered the Mishnah in the, in the 18th century, which is another one of my projects. Uh, but here, all of a sudden, the Kabbalah seems to have played a role in the rethinking of Christianity within the context of the Renaissance. Now, I'm running out of time. I want to go really quickly. What was the Jewish reaction? There were a few Jews that converted, apostasy. There were several Jews that hated Christian Kabbalah. You're going to hear about one of them from Bernie Cooperman named Leon Modena. He wrote a work called Ari Nohaim, uh, not to be confused with this Ari, uh, but uh, this lion. Uh, the Lion That Roars, which is an anti-Kabbalistic text. One of my uh, uh, beloved students, Yaakov Dweck, has written a book for Princeton, on, uh, has studied uh, this, this remarkable text. The Jews said, how can Christians, are, are, we shouldn't study Kabbalah, we shouldn't study it publicly, we shouldn't allow this to fall into Christian hands, because look what they're doing with it. They're distorting our tradition. They're taking our tradition and manipulating it in their Christian way, and they're leaving us with nothing. So all of a sudden, what emerges is a vein of anti-Kabbalistic uh, thought among certain Jews. But there were clearly others who were fascinated with this. 
and combine together both Kabbalah and Neoplatonic philosophy and magic and all of these things associated with Pico in creating their own version of Judaism, Yohanan Alimano being first and primary among a whole group of thinkers. Uh, I spent 10 years of my life working on a character named Avram Yagel, who was the student of Yohanan Alimano, uh, and I wrote two books on him in which uh, he was a physician who was also a Kabbalist, who clearly thought very much in the vein of Pico and his Neoplatonic contemporaries. So in other words, it went both ways. Uh, and clearly magic in particular, magic, alchemy, was elevated within this Italian Jewish Renaissance culture to the highest level. Alimano has in his writings a kind of ladder by which one ascends in terms of learning about all kinds of things. So first you start with the Torah, then you study rabbinics, and then you study philosophy, but the final end of the journey is magic, magical texts. So for Jews as well, this became an obsession, not only for Christians. In this regard, I want to mention, I'm getting close to the end, but I, although I want to refer to the second text, um, the most famous Jew of the Renaissance is a man named Leon Abreu. I remembered, uh, some of you are perhaps old enough to remember uh, the Dick Cavett show. And I remember one, uh, I turned it on once, uh, and he was interviewing Saul Bellow, the great Jewish writer. Um, and Bellow uh, was told by his undergraduate teacher, don't go into the English literature because you're not one of us. And Bellow gets really angry. I remember this because I, I don't know if anyone else was watching this, but it really turned me on. Um, and Bellow says, he turns to Dick Cavett and he says, have you ever heard of Leon Abreu? Leon Abreu was the son of Isaac Abravanel. Judah Abravanel was his name. And he was kicked out of Portugal and he came to Italy and there he settled in Florence. And he sat and he wrote a work in Florentine uh, Italian called the Dialoghi d'Amore, the Dialogues of Love. And it became a classic of Neoplatonic philosophy. And he signs it, Leon Ebreo, Leon, Leon is Yehuda, it's the same thing, Leon, uh, Leon Ebreo. He doesn't even hide that, the fact that he's Jewish. And this became a universal statement of the Renaissance along with Pico. Leon Ebreo is almost equally as famous. Uh, people who study Renaissance literature study this text as well. Leon Ebreo, uh, Bello says to uh, Dick Cavett, look, this guy didn't know a word of Italian, and he became one of the great classical writers of Italian literature in the 15th century. So why couldn't I do it as well in the English language? I mean, it was a great moment uh, to watch this on, on TV. It was a long time ago, but I still remember it. Clearly, Leon Ebreo is part of the same cultural world. Ebreo knew Kabbalah. Uh, he was part of this Neoplatonic mix and so on and so forth. Let me just point to you to the next text. And I realize that uh, I'm, I'm on cheeky ground here, but I'm going to end in just two or three more minutes. The second text is by my friend Abraham Yagel. I just want to show you how the notion of ancient theology could influence Jews as well. You see the text that begins in the Heritage Source Reader, page 164, the important sages among the Gentiles. You see where that is? who never saw the light of the Torah, nor of worship, prophecy, wonders, and miracles. Listen to what the sages say about the Creator. These are pagan philosophers talking about one God. I'm not going to read you all of this. Orpheus, look at the name, Zoroaster, Apuleius, the great Hermes. Hermes, that's hermetic philosophy, that's, that's magic, that's... 
that's ancient magic, no question about it. Hermeticism is something that was revised in this period of time. Notice in that last paragraph, quoting from the Pimander, he quotes a prayer which he translates into Hebrew. This was a Hebrew text which I translated. I have, if any of you are interested, I have the Hebrew text right here in front of me. I this is my translation. Um, and he goes, God is holy, the Father and the Creator, everything. God is holy, which will, he's quoting from Hermes. He's a goy, he's not even a Christian, he's, he's, he's a pagan, right? Um, listen uh, to what the sages, so wait, I'm looking for one line here, here and fortify, for I am in, and so on. Um, what he says is that basically all of these philosophers had a notion of God which was similar to that of Judaism. Now this is an incredible statement for a 16th, this was 16, early 16th century. How could a Jew make the idea of one God equivalent to the idea of the God of all the other philosophers? But that's ancient theology. In other words, the same idea that Pico had discovered this universal notion of faith, uh, uh, Abraham Yagel, the student of Alimano, was doing the same thing in his own Hebrew writing. So notice this mutuality, notice this interaction, notice this conversation that is taking place if one can decipher these texts. I know this is an elite culture. This doesn't affect common human beings and so on. And there are no women mentioned here. I know that. I'm sorry about it. But clearly, what is critical here is that there's some kind of conversation going on where Jews and Christians are sharing, are learning from each other, and are rethinking the notion of their own identity through this culture. I could talk at length, and I'm not going to, about the impact of Christian Kabbalah and Christian Hebraicism on Christian culture in the early modern period. There is a wonderful, <laughs> I take it back, there is a chapter in my book, uh, I was going to say wonderful chapter, That's, uh, I'm a very modest guy, um, which, which is about knowledge explosion, where I deal with the subject of Christian Hebraicism. So if you want to read, there are about 10 pages there, which will give you a very nice summary. Um, but what I want to end with is the following. Um, how is this all relevant? Uh, and you've been probably asking yourself the question all night as you stay awake to listen to me. Wait, I gotta slow down. Um, and the answer is, um, it seems to me that if you look at the Middle Ages and the Jewish-Christian debate, essentially Jews and Christians were arguing with each other about the own veracity of their own faith. So Christians would present uh, texts, and Jews would respond to those texts, and Jews would interpret them in their Jewish way, and Christians, and each of them were needed to know enough so as to uh, defeat their opponent. But there was no real mutual understanding. Basically, if you've ever been to a debate club, you know you, know you have to learn both pro and con. You have to know how to debate. You know, you know all the arguments. But was there any real understanding that happened? Uh, I, I'm not sure uh, there was. Uh, but the debate was about who had the true religion. Was it Christianity or was it Judaism? What I want to suggest happens now, and this is a very critical moment, is that for the first time in the history of Western culture, Jews are confronted with a new reality. Pico is saying to them, look, you Jews, we have persecuted you. We have screamed at you. We have tried to defeat you. But I don't want to do that now. I want to embrace you with Christian love. I want to bring you into my world. And what I want to do is you are a particular small group of people. By taking your culture and putting it in my new mosaic of universal culture, 
I will elevate you. I will bring you up to a higher understanding where you will be appreciated by all the peoples of the world. Hebraism will stand side by side with Greek culture and Latin culture, and altogether we will embrace the same universal God, from Orpheus to the Pomander to Hermes to Moses, uh, Moshe Messinai uh, from, from Sinai. All you have to do is, therefore, is to embrace my universal vision and ultimately you will recognize the value of Judaism for yourself and all peoples will recognize you for your importance. Now one proviso, this sounds very, very, you know, uh, fantastic, etc. This is not ecumenicism. Why not? Because ultimately it is a Christian truth that Pico came up with. In other words, what he does is he reads all of these texts and all other cultures, but ultimately they all prove Jesus Christ. In other words, it's ultimately a Christian imperialism. It's, it's very clever, right? I mean, it's really, it's enticing. A Jew now can come out of his ghetto and enter the larger world and be part of the great culture of, 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 of the universe and so on. But of course, you do it on Pico's terms, not on your own terms. There is still a power relationship going on here between a majority culture and a minority culture. But nevertheless, the challenge to us as we live in a universal culture, uh, a culture which uh, demands of us to be part of a larger world um, and, and a world which is not necessarily uh, allowing us to hold on to our Jewish specificity. Clearly that enticement already begins with Pico in the 15th century. So when I read this, I saw this as clearly a modern moment or the beginning of a modern moment. It was an extraordinary moment when Christians were seeking out Judaism, not so much to convert Jews, but to convert themselves but the ultimate product of, the, of, of their own personal transformation was, of course, a Christian one. Nevertheless, this is an extraordinary moment in the history of Western culture. And as you see, the Renaissance, you will never think of the Renaissance again as being something that was exclusively for white Protestant males or white Catholic males. Uh, it has a very rich Jewish component. And now I end. So I think I was five minutes over. But uh, anyway, 50 minutes instead of 45. Uh, questions, comments? Um, today there is a renewed motivation to study Kabbalah amongst mainstream society. You have the Kabbalah movement. You have Madonna. You have Christian studies. Yeah, in California, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are any of the motivations for the Christians that are studying Kabbalah today parallel to what was going on in the time of the Renaissance? Yeah, there, there are obviously a lot of differences, um, you know, New Age and all of that. In fact, what's interesting is there are a group of scholars now that have been studying modern manifestations of the Kabbalah. Gershon Sholem, the great scholar of the Kabbalah, was only interested in the history of previous centuries, but now we have a whole group of people who are actually studying uh, the Kabbalah Center in, in Manhattan and, of course, the one here. And, um, and, and, uh, and yeah, no, I think there are incredible parallels. Uh, I, I think some of the lines of thinking about, uh, about Kabbalah, uh, the, the universal nature of Kabbalah. I remember when I was at Yale, um, I brought Moshe Dell, who I mentioned already as one of the great Kabbalah scholars of our generation, uh, to Yale when I was teaching there. Uh, and there was a character, a Catholic philosopher named uh, Louis Dupre. And we did a program together where we talked about Kabbalah and Christianity. And he got up right in the middle of this and he said, turned to me, looked at me and said, you Jews, 
You, this is what the Kabbalah is. It'll take you out of your intellectual ghetto. You are so closed off. We need to share your values with the entire world. What are you doing trying to, to keep it within yourselves? And he went on to give this sermon, which he was like missionizing us. It was, it was unbelievable, all in the name of the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah would be the vehicle by which uh, all religions would be universalized. So I think you know some of that with the holy water, I mean, it's ever a commercial enterprise and so on, and the red ribbons and all of that stuff. But there is definitely a connection. Uh, later on, I'm going to talk about another interesting phenomenon of our days called Jews for Jesus. That has a long history as well. It didn't just begin in the 21st century or the 20th century. Um, I'm going to be talking about 17th century Jews for Jesus and talk about syncretism, talk about mingled identities. I think there, there is, that's one of my great fascinations with, uh, with Jewish intellectual history. Uh, so, uh, indeed, uh, I mean, that's the beauty of history, that we can sort of place this. We, we are not, uh, uh, I, uh, there, there's a phrase that I love to use called, uh, which uh, uh, Morris Adler, the, the great conservative <coughs> rabbi that was, you know, his story, he was a rabbi in Detroit, and he was killed by a, this was long before the guns, he was killed by a congregant who shot him while he was giving a sermon. Um, but he had a wonderful phrase, which I probably will repeat several times this month, called, Without history, we stand naked before the immediate. Uh, I love that phrase, standing naked before the immediate. In other words, indeed, uh, to understand Kabbalah today and to understand uh, uh, Madonna and all of that, uh, one needs to go back and talk about Pico and talk about the Christian origins of Kabbalah. Uh, and, and all of the texts that were published by Christians in the 16th century, they published the Zohar before the Jews published the Zohar. They published it in Latin translations. We have a work called Kabbalah de Nudata in the 17th century, which is an extraordinary anthology of every Kabbalistic text put into Latin for Christians. So indeed, uh, uh, this was a way, Kabbalah, ironically and paradoxically, a kind of esoteric Jewish lore, became a vehicle by which Christians entered into Jewish space. So uh, indeed, we have an historical legacy here. Yeah, go on. Why do you think that Christians focused on Kabbalah, which as you said, very obscure, esoteric, as opposed to maybe the Talmud or some, or, or some of the rabbinic writings, which are probably at least a little bit more accessible. Okay, good. I left out one piece, and that is, in the Middle Ages and in the 15th century, the Kabbalah was not thought of as a medieval text. It was written by Shimon Bar Yochai, and he recorded, in other words, it, went all, it, it was an ancient text that came very close to the biblical text itself. So by reading the Kabbalah, I, I missed that point. That was a critical point here. They were, both Jews and Christians in the 15th century saw the Kabbalah as a very antique text which allowed them to, be, to, be, to get into the world of the Bible. It was the closest to the Bible. It was the pure form of, of a Jewish oral uh, tradition that developed after the Bible, which would allow one to un unravel the biblical text and the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. Remember, uh, so for Shimon Bar Yochai is a contemporary, more or less, of, of Jesus. And therefore, getting into Jesus' head, let's read, the, let's read Kabbalah. So for, that's their motivation, even though, of course, we know now that wasn't the case. Well, I actually, you answered. If we know the Christian, I'm sure knew that the Zohar was written by Moshe de Leon, and not uh, really by. Uh, we know that. We knew. Yes. That. They, they didn't know that. 
They didn't know that? No, no, no. They, it was, this was Bar Yochai. It was written in the Aramaic. It was thought to be a text contemporary with the Mishnah. It was thought to be a, a Tanainic text. The Zohar is perceived as a Tanainic text. That means it was written in the first centuries of the common era. And therefore, it was coterminous with Christianity. And therefore, this is how we get to ancient Christianity, through, this, through the Kabbalah. And that's why Pico was so fascinated with this text. And he bought into the notion that, indeed, Kabbalah was an ancient Jewish lore. And indeed, even today, among modern scholars, I mean, uh, both Sholom and Yigel and all the people I read about Kabbalah speak about ancient uh, Hechalot mysticism, pre-early mysticism in the Mishnaic period, in the Talmudic period, and so on. Um, Sfat, uh, which, of course, is the 16th century Kabbalistic center, Safed, is also, it, it's shrouded in the mystery of the Mishnah. They would recite the Mishnah in Safed in the 16th century. They would recite it as a kind of Kabbalistic trance. Uh, it's really weird. The Mishnah, you, you know, I want to talk about this, this text in our, in our next lecture. The, the Mishnah is a legal text. But for them, it became a kind of spiritual awakening by reciting the letters and the words of these texts. Um, so that's exactly why uh, the Kabbalah was, was primary for them. Doesn't it really even go one step further that even though you know, supposedly the myth is it was written in a cave in, in the time of the Mishnah. But the writing down was only a writing down of something that pre-existed. That it, in fact, was delivered from Mount Sinai yes, yes, and yes. had the same, same dignity as the Torah itself. Absolutely. I mean, I'm speaking about it like a scholar, you know, or unraveling a text, but what we're doing is we're getting at the divinity. We're, yeah. we're touching God through this excavation of this text. From Mount Sinai. Exactly. So, so that's how we get to God, right, through, through Sinai, through re-experiencing the revelation of God. And, and Pico bought into that. I mean, he had these Hebrew books. You should see this library of Pico. It's, it's primarily as good as most uh, Jews today in terms of their, their library at home. He knew Jewish texts and he read these texts and he underlined these texts. We have these manuscripts, as I said, sitting in the Vatican, uh, which is quite amazing. All right. So just a question. I did not know that the Christians published the Kabbalistic text before the Jews. So in their published, in, in their text, is it consistent with the Hebrew text or is it different? The actual text of their, you know, their publication. So if you pulled up you know, the first chapter of their Zohar, is it the same? If you read them in English or do you understand them in their language? Uh, some of them are really quite authentic. I mean, I could give you um, a number of examples. Uh, just one example, Johann uh, Reuchlin, who was a student at Pico, who went back to Germany. He's the one that he got into a big fight with. They were going to burn all the Talmuds in the 16th century, and he said, don't burn the Talmud. Uh, but he also published, he wrote uh, a whole series of his own of Kabbalistic works, which he translated um, into Latin and so on. And uh, the scholarship was really quite uh, amazing. The Kabbalah du Nudanta, which is the 17th century anthology, which includes texts from Isaac Luria of the 16th century, is really an authentic work of translation. Now, clearly, there were interpolations, like Mitridatus, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and bringing out a kind of Christological meaning of these texts and so on. But many of them, uh, in other words, the, 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 what, what emerges at the same time through humanism in the 16th and 17th century is this high level of Christian scholarship. Scholars were learning, Christian scholars were learning uh, uh, Arabic, and they were learning Aramaic, and they were learning uh, Persian, and they were also, and they were learning uh, rabbinic texts as well. And th their scholarship was really quite serious. Uh, so some of it is very primitive initially, 
But as we go through the 16th century, uh, these Latin translations become extremely, uh, quite worthwhile. Um, the, the history of Christian Hebraicism, right up into the 18th century, and you'll see I'm going to pick it up in the next lecture, uh, is, a, is a scholarship that becomes so good that they don't even have to rely on Jews anymore. Uh, that, that they, indeed, we have a, a group of Christians who really know their Hebrew text, and not just the biblical text. I mean, in this period, I, I didn't mention the Reformation, which is also coterminous with the Renaissance. In the Reformation, all of these uh, scholars are also studying uh, the, the biblical text. They're going back to the original Hebrew. So, uh, indeed, the level is, 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 is pretty high. Uh, and, of course, sometimes there's collaboration between Jews and Christians. Uh, we are told that in the Renaissance, Jews who walked around might be grabbed up by a Christian in the street in order to, to read with them Hebrew texts together. Um, but, um, but clearly, the, the Christians took this quite seriously. And the, most, the, most, the proof of the pudding is that, remember who publishes the Talmud? Um, Daniel Bomborg, a Christian who comes down from Antwerp to Venice. I'll talk about this when I talk about Venice. Um, Bomborg publishes the Talmud, and he publishes the Mikrochidolot, the, the rabbinic Bible. He publishes Hebrew text. He's making a living. Who's, he re who's reading this? Jews are buying it, but also Christians are buying it. That's my point. So uh, there is, there's a level of, of, of literacy here which is really quite remarkable, at least among an elite group. Do you want me to stop? You're moving in that direction. Um, we'll game. do one more question, and then we'll wrap it up for now. Go. You know, I was wondering if the emphasis of the Christians in studying Kabbalah and not really Torah. Although we feel that the Kabbalah are commentaries of the Torah, is it because they had their New Testament? So there was not emphasis in the Old Testament. So something different from the Old Testament was the Kabbalah that was not already there. And as a way of gaining deeper understanding on the magic of it to gain more power to alter reality. Uh, you're right. Well, first of all, Pico did study uh, the Hebrew text. He wasn't as great Hebraic as some of the others, but he had, of course, the help of all of these teachers. So he didn't, so his theses are very much Kabbalistic, but they also include Jewish philosophy. He read, for example, Gersonides. He read Maimonides. Um, he was interested in philosophical, the theosophical texts, that's for sure. But what I want to say is that, in general, in, from the end of the 15th and 16th century on, a whole group of Christians were reading the Hebrew text and questioning the Vulgate translation and arguing that, indeed, maybe we need to get back to the Hebrew original. So biblical scholarship was very much at the heart of Christian Hebraicism as well. And a number of these scholars actually went to write biblical uh, books of dikduk. In other words, they, they examined biblical grammar. They wrote biblical commentaries. Uh, and they tried to expand a Christian understanding of the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament, of course. But clearly, they could not rely on the Vulgate translation in Latin. They need to go back to uh, the original. So, so there are many facets of Christian Hebraicism, but uh, and the Kabbalah being only one of them. Enough? That's it, so thank you all. Yeah.